The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Welcome to Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker in New York, and I am alive, well, kicking and screaming. And I'm here with my podcast co-host, Tom Astor in Oxford, who I'm looking at right now, lying in a bed... You've had your second jab. You're not feeling too well. Tom, welcome. Nice. Good evening. I've had my first jab. This is what happened to you after the first yeah, jab. Yeah, I'm rather dreading the second one. I felt a little bit fizzy. And then some, actually, I was feeling fine or a little bit weird. And then about a couple of hours ago, I just started being seriously ill. So not wanting to let you down or the podcast down, I've taken to bed and um, we'll try and podcast from here. But... Luckily, this is a podcast, so hopefully people generally be listening to this, not watching it. But well, I would imagine a lot of people listen to this in bed anyway, Tom. So the fact that you are joining them from the bed, uh, I think, is particularly honourable of you. And uh, it's a rather nice bedroom, I got to say. I like the sheets across the back of the wall. This looks like green wallpaper. And, you know, you're drinking a cocktail. I can't quite see where your hands are, which is making me nervous, but. Um, oh, there they are. But I am very, very glad <laughs> that you are joining us. From First of all, I thought that you couldn't get COVID when you were 100% proof yourself. Thanks, though. Nor did I. I didn't think I could suffer so much having had COVID and now having had the jab. But I, th- I, I have heard that it, that it does affect people who have had COVID. It apparently isn't that much fun. But So why do you need the jab if you've had COVID? Well, that's what I asked the doctor, and they said you should have it anyway, so I don't know. Well, now you're in bed. I've had one jab, and I'm absolutely fine. I have my next one in a few days' time. So I'm hoping, hoping, praying that I'm, I'm going to be fine. Now, what are you drinking on when you have COVID and you're lying in bed? What does a man drink? When he's lying in bed sweating profusely with, with, a, with a temperature, obviously a hot toddy. I mean, it was going to... It was going to be a glass of water, but I thought that would be unimaginative on a, on a, on a cocktail podcast. So I went the extra mile, hot toddy, basically blended famous grass, hot water and lemon and a bit of honey. That should see those COVID germs away is all I can say. And uh, I thought I'd jo- join you in a completely different note because I was feeling rather festive. And I decided to make myself a Cosmo of all things, which, uh, you know, is vodka uh, a kettle one I decided to use and go for, and it has a, a half an ounce of lime juice, freshly squeezed, cranberry juice, and uh, some simple syrup, shaken and you know not stirred, and poured into a martini glass. So, cheers, my mate. I'm sorry you're not feeling very well, but yes, here's to a, a rather fun podcast that we have ahead of us. Well, I, hmm. I can still speak. You can. I think you're absolutely just faking it and once again going for an extraordinary amount of attention. But that doesn't matter. We have booze news. Booze news! (laughs) You're a complete hypochondriac, and I love it. And you always have been. Just ridiculous. Anything anything to get extra attention from Nanny. Nanny! (laughs) I don't feel well, Nanny! Please help me, Nanny! Yes, well, if all of you don't know... Tom's nickname for my wife is, in fact, Nanny. But Tom has long been my valet, who's travelled around the world with me, ironing my trousers and making me fabulous cocktails, which he can't deny because he's lying in a bed right now and he can't speak. So we're going to get on with booze news and a lot of exciting things happening in the world of booze news. First of all, for all those barkers out there, and I'm not talking about members of my family, I'm talking about the furry type. They're rather cuter than my barker family. 
Bush is up to pay your pup up to $20,000 this year. They're running a campaign to find the official dog for the dog brew taster. That's it's kind of hilarious. They basically are looking for a pooch to be their campaign dog, their supermodel, and they're paying them $20,000 for this dog to become the campaign dog of Bush for their beer, the, the dog brew line. I mean, that's quite a lot of money, right? There's a lot of people out there. All you do, very simple. You, all you have to do is enter this picture on your Instagram account and uh, tag Bush uh, and use the hashtag BushCTOContest and you can be up to potentially have your dog become the face of you know, this dog brew. And the, by the way, this dog brew is non-alcoholic, all natural, bone broth based beverage. It basically comes in a can, looks like a beer, and it's, your, your dog drinks it while you drink your beer. I mean, there's something for everyone these days, Tom. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, everything. And Bush, can we just, for the sake of the English listeners, explain what Bush means in America? Because it means something quite different to me. Well, it, it's spelt differently too, Tommy Boy. It is B-U-S-C-H. Bush, as in, I believe, Anheuser Bush is the company, probably. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm assuming they have the uh, dog brew line. But in other news, are you familiar with NFTs, Jack? Jack, who's Jack? I know, I'm getting, I'm getting completely senile, by the way. In my old age, you're lying in there in bed <laughs> and I'm calling you my son's name. And I am Jack. Are you familiar with NFTs, Tom? Um, no. Well, they're this sort of thing that people are investing in. They're sort of digital artwork, digital oh, photography. Yes, I have one sold the other day for reached records $60 million or something. Or $60 million. $60 million. And it was, you know, it's, it's sort of Shaq or someone sort of putting a ball in a basket. I mean, just an extraordinary thing where you'll be able to buy digital art. Well, guess what? There is now digital wine, NFT wine. So you're, you're going to buy vintage wines, classic wines. Uh, there's a, a Toronto-based company called Bitwine that's released a series of 1,000 non-fungible tokens. That's what NFT stands for, non-fungible token, that combine pixel art and wine. You can buy anything from sort of rare unicorn-type bottle wines to very rare wines, and uh, it's all on this website called OpenSea. And these bottles of NFT wine, which, by the way, there's no wine, it's just a digital picture of one, have sold for as much as $34,000. I mean, it's just extraordinary in a way, really. I mean, I, I kind of look at it and I'm... I don't well, for really a wine that, sorry, for a wine that you can't drink. That's right. There's currently a bit wine for sale for nearly $300,000. It's a Cru Burgundy from Vosne Romane Appellation and is described as a top-tier Burgundian Pinot Noir. People are clearly losing their mind. It's one thing in a pandemic to be out there drinking too much wine. It's another thing to be buying imaginary wine, people. I'm not sure where this is going, really. You just made something up there because you just created an entirely new area of French winemaking region. I probably have. You pronounce Burgundy, Burgundy. So I, I think from now on should be, <laughs> should be a Burgundy, Burgundy. Yeah, I think that I just might be onto something here. And I, I think I might have created a complete new Torah. <laughs> 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 we are, I do what I can for the wine industry, Tom, to, to revolutionize it. But we have a rather fabulous guest on this week. Before we get into exactly who our guest is, our guest today is perhaps best known from the 20th season of ABC's The Bachelor. My God, 20 seasons. 
He's also the co-founder of the Generous Coffee International. You hear that, Tom? Generous Coffee. Uh, a a for-purpose company dedicated to contributing profits to social issues around the world. Uh, sounds like Laughing Man, our friend Hugh Jackman. I've got something there in common. He has an IGTV series, Hope Still Wins, which is a sort of overarching theme with this man, Hope, uh, where guests share personal stories that have helped shape their current view on hope. He also stays connected with his loyal bachelor following with his popular podcast, Almost Famous, which is probably going to be updated with a new season called I'm Damn Famous. And as if that wasn't enough, he has a new book out called Alone in Plain Sight. Please welcome Ben Higgins. Ben, mate, how are you? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me. Really, really great to be talking to you all. It's our pleasure, and I, as you can see, and for all of you out there in podcast world, if you're not, if you don't see a clip of this, Tom, Tommy, boys, we've already sort of noted is lying in bed, and I think Ben is a little concerned. We've got a rather, you know, simpatico guest today who cares for the fact that Tom is lying in bed. I will say, Tom, I hope you're feeling okay, but your setup is fantastic. The fact that you found out a way to frame yourself while on a bed is very impressive. You don't want to ask why, Ben? The fact that he has a good camera set up in his bedroom? Oh my God. Have you not worked on reality television? Have we not seen the horrible videos that happen in bedrooms? Oh my goodness. Where does that come in? That's a good sorted point. little mind, sorted little mind working away there. No, no, no. Just be glad he hasn't got his, his bathroom cam on, Ben, is all I'm saying, because this could be happening from the bathroom, which is an entirely another different setup. Hey, OnlyFans is a thing now, so you can you can do whatever you want, Tom. No judgment. <laughs> I don't know about no judgment, but you're absolutely right. Ben, what are you drinking? I'm assuming one of your generous coffees. I am. It's a It's a cup that uh, somebody painted my picture on the outside of it and gave it to me as a gift. There's some generous coffee inside. Yes, that is my drink today at this moment. Have you always been a coffee drinker? You know, just like most, uh, college kind of kicked up my coffee intake. And then uh, as I got older, I learned more about coffee and I I guess grew an appreciation for it. I'm a big bourbon and like Añejo tequila fan. And so I I do like the bitter. I do like the, the stronger taste. And so coffee fits that in the morning for me. And yeah, I mean, I didn't know I'd be a coffee guy and like have my career around coffee. But recently in life, I've became more passionate. So, so let's face it. So to, to Tom, Ben comes on a cocktail podcast with a coffee, even though he drinks tequila and bourbon. So clearly it's just a sales tool. He's just trying to sell coffee on our show. Do you hear that? I, I've got, I'm very happy we've got a new sponsor for this episode. Generous yes. Coffee is incredibly generous and has decided to underwrite Shaken and Stirred episode. At least some Irish coffee. <laughs> <laughs> we can pour some whiskey in it. I'm not against it. But yes, I'm taking advantage of every moment I have, especially with two very impactful people like you. I would love to, <laughs> to get generous out there. Cheers, my friend. We love it. Very generous. We we two mugs. Look, two. Well, I was about to say we got two mugs on shake on shake. Yes, we have. We do have two mugs. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Get us acquainted with generous coffee. Now we're familiar with Laughing Man and and the sort of the theme there, where you know it gives back to the people who make the coffee and what have you. What is it about generous coffee? What is the mission and and why did you form it? First off, Laughing Man's great. And uh, and I think it's a cool part about the coffee space is there's a lot of people that can operate within it because most people drink coffee. And so you're, when you're, your target market is very large. In short, this is what happened. When I was 15 years old, I went to Central America for the first time with my buddy, Saw Poverty. 
witnessed injustice, felt odd about it, but didn't know what to do about it. As we all grew up and we started to, to get our own platforms and our own ways of financially supporting ourselves, we realized that we could use this money and our time and our resources and our knowledge to try to give back. And so we started an organization called Humanity and Hope United, which is building sustainable communities all around Central America. Well, that's a nonprofit. And uh, one of the things with a nonprofit, it becomes really hard to fundraise sustainably long term. You know, you have these strategic goals that are 10 years out, but how do you know what your funding is going to be then? And so we decided to start a for-profit company and all the owners would sign off in the operating agreement that they could never profit on the value of the company or on the sale of a product. So each owner had to have kind of this be their passion project. And then we would donate 100% of profits to nonprofits around the world. And so we're a for-profit company. We call ourselves For Purpose. Uh, and then we donate everything that we sell uh, back to nonprofits facing human injustice around the world. Wow. Look at that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We have an overachiever on our hands. Yeah, I'm trying to hard. No, it's and, and you know the cool part about it is is it builds this network of, of amazing people. You know, we've partnered with other coffee companies, we've partnered with a ton of other for-purpose brands kind of around the globe who've just said, hey, we see a problem, we want to try to use our resources to fix it. Let's do something about it. And so it's it's been a great community to be a part of. And where is Generous Coffee available? Where, where are people picking it up right now? Is it, it's, do you have your own stores and things like that? Or is it just something you can buy online? Or how does it work? We do have our own stores, mostly in Denver, which is where I live. Uh, mm-hmm. But we are, I'd say 90% of our sales is all done online. Um, we do this, you know, we do the conventions and we can get outsourced at schools and churches. But uh, we do most of our stuff online at generouscoffee.com. Uh, you can buy it. And uh, we have apparel we also have mugs that are made by hand and handbags that are made by hand by men and women who are either in Haiti and they're single mothers and they, they are getting employed or uh, our mugs give back 100% to uh, other nonprofits. So generouscoffee.com, subscriptions and bags of coffee are all available there. Amazing, amazing. We will be getting our next coffee and trust me, I will be ordering and making some sort of interesting um, cocktails on the show with your coffee. I always love that when a guest has some sort of rather cool thing that gives back. It's very, very cool. Look, you, you've got an interesting career already, to be honest, Ben. I, mean, I look at everything you're doing. You, you are very busy. You've got a lot of great things happening. You kind of, obviously, your career kind of changed probably the direction through this Bachelor show, which, you know, was that something which you, you, you knew where you were headed when you got on The Bachelor? Or was it something that just sort of started to unfold and unwind as you kind of got on it and were like, okay, this is all now available to me? Or was there a game plan in advance of it? No, you might have understated how much my career or my life changed from that show. You know, a lot of people have mixed feelings on the show. I get that. But it's been really good for me personally. And it's opened my whole world up to new opportunities. So my story is this. I was in software sales. Uh, I was really bad at my job. In fact, one week before I started on The Bachelor, I had shut down our whole system at my work and made everybody work on the weekend. That's how bad I was at my job. And so I knew I didn't have much longer to work at this company. Uh, I go on The Bachelor and obviously, long story short is fame starts to hit, but it's it's not really based on a skill set. It's not really based on anything I had done. It's nothing tangible that I had had happened to me. Like I, I wasn't a good singer. I, I wasn't a great host. I wasn't the most charismatic. I was just the bachelor, but yet people seem to care. And so after walking through that experience for, for a while, 
it felt fairly empty to have people recognize me as just the bachelor. I didn't know what to do with it. And my buddies actually advised me, advised me and they said, Hey, what if you use this for something other than yourself? What if the opportunities that are coming your way in five, 10 years aren't going to be based on you being almost famous? What if they're going to be based on the impact that you're making and the people around you? And so that's where things started to change. It's where Generous came in. It's where Hope Still Wins came in. It's where the book came in, where it's me starting to understand other people's stories and then trying to do what I could with the platform that was handed to me for, like I said, really no great reason to try to fight the injustices they're facing. Does that sound familiar, Nigel? I was going to say, right? Hey, doesn't that sound familiar? Shut up. Honestly, (laughs) just pipe it Um, Ben. Listen, I mean, you're, what, what you're saying, I mean, this whole almost famous thing, it is, this, it is the story of our time, is it not? I mean, there is an element of the sort of semi-celebrity type of scenario. And listen, I'm someone who comes from, you know, reality television too. You know, I worked on reality television for so long. And, you know, you, you feel like an imposter almost. There's a sort of imposter yeah. syndrome that sort of goes on where you're like, I'm a photographer. Why would anyone want to talk to me or listen to me? Like, or what do I do? Like, why do I, why am I famous? What have I achieved? And, you know, what have I done? But then what is fame? I mean, in in a way, fame has nothing to do with being special necessarily, right? Unfortunately, you can be famous for many reasons, right? So the famous part isn't necessarily connected with a good deed necessarily or some brilliance. It could be connected with just about anything. What's your, your general take on fame? Well, you know, it's interesting because as stuff started to get more and more famous for me, as people started to pay more attention to me, the one thing I started to think of is what exactly does this mean? And I tried to think back 150 years ago, which isn't that long ago, to the people that were most famous back then. And I bet I couldn't name four of those people. And so that's not a legacy that I really felt like was worth pursuing. Now, fame is not something that I want to want to run away from either, because it does increase opportunities. It does increase the things that I can be a part of. And as a result, at some level, that's exciting to me and it, and it increases my life. I think what fame to me is, is an increase of opportunities. The question then lies is, what are you going to do with it? Uh, because fame will come and go. It's fleeting. It will happen and it will pass. It can't last forever. And so it's, for me, what is the opportunities that I can do with the fame that's been handed to me? I mean, it, we're working on making it last forever. I, and I'm all for it. When we went on a podcast to say that we would, we would, no one would know what we looked like and we could basically lie in bed and, and, and people just hear our voices and we'd still be famous forever. That would be the hope, right? Like that would be incredible if in, when I'm 60, 70, 80 years old, if I can look back on this and say, wow, like I've some st- somehow stayed relevant for 50 years of my life. And as a result, like I have had careers and opportunities that I, I love and enjoy and that are a lot more fun than, than I, what I was doing before. I just don't know how to do that forever. I, like I said, if I was a great singer, if I was a great actor, if I was a great host, I could make that happen. But I was just the bachelor. And I don't want to just, I don't say that to be self-deprecating. I think there's some like really cool things that happen with that. But you're a photographer, like you've got a skill. What skill did I go into being the bachelor with? And so now it's, hey, here's what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about finding injustice, trying to speak out upon it and doing something to take action to try to alleviate it. If I stay famous because of that, I'm okay with it. During COVID, right? everyone's locked down, everyone's sort of, you know, it's, I can't get out, can't do anything. There was a, definitely a need for people to, to be reassured. And I think a lot of people lost hope with just general life in general. I mean, like everything was 
shutting down, people were dying, the news was hor- horrific, and it wasn't just a localized issue. It, it, there was nowhere to run to. It seemed like the entire world, if you know, everyone's universe yeah. almost was shutting down. And you decided to come out with a IGTV live series called Hope Still Wins. I want to ask you, where does your faith stem from? So I am a believer as much as this has been pushed around and convoluted. I'm a believer in Jesus because I believe that life works better when we can love others and love God. And that's about as far as I can stretch it, right? I don't want to get into uh, the small details of it. I think it's really dangerous when we do. I think there's been a lot of terrible things happen when people try to combat and fight over those issues. I believe in loving others and loving God. And so if that's the the calling on my life, if I believe that God has called me to that, if I've been created for that purpose, then life seems to make more sense to me. I seem to help more than I hurt. You know, when it comes to hope still wins in a time where everybody was kind of, and it was almost beautiful uh, in, in a way, if you, you know, there was a lot of terrible things that happened during COVID, but the fact that we were all on an equal playing field, that everybody was at home, that the rat race of trying to stay more famous or get more wealthy or whatever, take the coolest vacation was kind of done. And so we were all at home sitting there. Uh, and as, after I talked to some people in my life, you know, what I decided was, do people still believe in hope right now? Because it feels like a lot of things are falling down around us. It feels like there's a lot of chaos, a lot of disorientation. And the one thing that's always stayed constant in life, even through really difficult things for anybody, uh, is that they believe that a better future can exist at some point. So I started to show with the question of, does hope still wins? But here's where things kind of got evolved for it, was after having this conversation with a few people, and great thinkers and authors and hosts, I started to realize that not everybody believes hope still wins. Um, because like some would tell me, in order for hope to still win, you have to have something in your past that you can lean on then to point towards a better future. But if you have a life where there's been no hope, if there's been nothing that you can celebrate, if it's been really traumatic and hard, which some have had, how do you believe in a better future? How do you believe in a hope? So then the question is, well, what can we do and who can we speak out for, for those people? How can we bring hope into their lives? And you have to walk a thin line here because I can't be the savior, but we have to do this together. Like, this is not me saying, hey, I'm going to go out there and, and fix the world. I don't, I don't have the ability to do that. But what I can do is hopefully do a show on my Instagram that encourages somebody to look left and right for the people hurting around them. And then maybe take a step towards those people and say, hey, how can I help you? What do you need? What do you dream of? Can I be of resource? I mean, it's, it's a very interesting kind of topic of conversation, no doubt. I mean, there's, it's something where, you know, when you, the more you think about the concept of hope, to your point, if you're born into poverty, if you've never been, you know, you, you, you're potentially an orphan or, you know, you don't have certain things at your fingertips to help you and you, you don't have family, you don't have a, you know, a network you know, and things haven't gone well, you, you may not have much hope, if if any at all. You know, you're really day-to-day about things. And obviously, COVID comes around, and you know, there are people who we all probably know, and we certainly do, who died because of COVID. And, you know, so, f- uh, you know, where was the hope there, for example? Yeah. It's a very tough question. However, it does seem to also be what makes humanity often special is our ability to have hope and say faith, right? To have faith that there can be a better world, a better life to push us through, to fight for something unknown, to fight to to fight for 
the opportunity or the possibility, right, that, that hope gives us. Yeah, so yeah. is that something, we, I mean, I've seen it too. I mean, I've done documentaries in Haiti and places like that where, you know, they're after the earthquake and people have got zero. Their entire family wiped out. They're living in a, you know, like a mud hut of, of literally that's falling apart in City Soleil, one of the worst slums in the Western Hemisphere. And they're talking about going to church, education, positivity, running for local election and great stuff that you're like, what? You know, you're sharing a house with five people you don't even know because not one of them is a relative just because you need to have a roof over your head and you'll somehow have got more hope and more faith than I than I see people who've got everything, right? Well, it's interesting that you say that because we do a lot of work in Honduras and something that wasn't covered as well as what I would have hoped it would have been because of our election this year was Honduras had a, a Category 5 hurricane, one of the biggest in 100 years, strike uh, right outside of San Pedro Sula, so they're one of their largest cities in the Sula Valley. And that's where we do a lot of work. It's where a lot of our communities exist. And so uh, obviously we responded and we started to figure out, okay, we worked with uh, the Global Empowerment Mission, which is a large nonprofit here in the U.S. that does a lot of aid for disaster relief. So we get all this stuff rallied, right? Right away, we're on it. Three days later from the first hurricane, a second hurricane of equal magnitude hits the same place. So you're talking about one of the poorest uh, countries on the globe per capita, also one of the most violent when it comes to the city of San Pedro Sula. You know, it's always up there when it comes to murders per capita. And yet they're kicked while they're down. And so how are we expected as humans to look at them and say, hey, it's going to be okay. Like, this is going to be fine. You're going to get through this. Because for them, they've lost everything. Not that they had a lot at the beginning, and now they're wondering, where's our next meal going to come from? Also, on top of that, COVID still exists. And so how are we going to get medical treatment when the hospitals are flooded out? Uh, what about our families that are stuck up in the trees in the mountains now for five days without food and clean water? What are we going to do about them? And the, the situation becomes overwhelming. And I think in those moments, as you just said in Haiti, what we have to do, or what I, I guess I would encourage my team to do at Generous, would be just, just start taking the next best step to start taking action. It might not, you're not going to solve it all, but at least you could start taking the next best step and using your resources, your time to ask people around you who are hurting, who are maybe experiencing that lack of hope. The question of one, how are you doing? How can I help? How can I be here? What do you dream of? And you can start building some kinship instead of just pushing it aside and moving on. I mean, is that what happens? What happens if people don't, right? What happens if people don't have hope? You know, I guess is a question that strikes me is, you know, that for all those people who, like you just mentioned, you laid out, that seems like a hopeless situation. You know, there's rising tides, there's famine, there's mm. illness, rife, and then there's COVID on top of that. And an additional layer, you know, what are you supposed to do? What are you, how are you supposed to take care of those people? There's not food. Food is not coming. Help is yeah. not coming. What do you do? I mean, my response to that would be you do something first. But I think understanding what you're saying is truth is a good first step is that there's people out there that are hurting constantly. That as we walk through our days and we have great opportunities and great luxuries, there's still people who are experiencing incredible amounts of injustice and pain and hurt. One of the things with Alone in Plain Sight, the book I just wrote that I came to a conclusion of is that. One of the things that connects us the most as, human, as humans, take away 
your faith, take away the religion, take away hope, take away all those things. One of the things that still connects us is our shared pains. So we've all had some sort of pain in our life, be that loss of family, be that disease, be that hurt, be that financial struggles. Everybody's had a story in their life that they recognize as this hurt me. I felt this deeply. And as a result, it builds an empathy inside of you as a human to look at those people who are also hurting and say, I just want to sit with you in this. Maybe I don't even know how to fix it. Maybe there isn't a fix to this. Maybe the truth to this is there is no salt, there is no solution, but at least I can use my my time and my energy to sit beside you and mourn with you when mourning's necessary, but also hopefully celebrate you with you at some point when a celebration is necessary. I just want to live life with you and I don't want to sugarcoat it. I want to recognize it as truth. And what you just said is true for some. It's true for many in this world, actually that people are hurting constantly. And if that's truth that we can allow sit into our system, then I believe every human will take a step forward and say, okay, how can I be a part of the solution and not continue to hurt the problem that exists already? Well said, well said. Look, you just mentioned your book, Alone in Plain Sight. Congratulations, you just just released that book. It's available on Amazon. It's also available as an ebook. Everyone out there, Alone in Plain Sight. It's a, it's a kind of a great title, you know, and I feel that there are many people who perhaps feel that way, you know, that they are alone in plain sight. It's a book that's sort of looking for, you write, looking for connection when you're seen and not heard. Is this something that you see as its own pandemic that's out there? Or is this something that's very personal? Well, both. I, at first, it was personal, which made me feel more alone. Uh, at first, I felt alone, which made me think I was the odd man out, that I was the only one that was on the outside looking in, that I couldn't figure out why I felt so alone. The reason for the book happened when I recognized that this is an issue spreading across the globe. In fact, and there's a study I, I read about in the book, and it's only increased over time, but in the 1990s, Harvard did a study, and 20% of people admitted to a feeling of deep loneliness, which they categorized as a, as a loneliness that made them feel something physically, like that, that, that affected them physically. 15 years later, the same study was done, and that had doubled to 40% of people. Today, the study will be getting completed, obviously, probably released this next year. They do it about every 15 years. I'm imagining that will not only maybe double, but it, it, it will go to 60 70% of people after COVID especially, will have felt a deep feeling of loneliness that has affected them physically. And so that's where the book came from. It started with me feeling it personally, thinking I was the weirdo, the odd man, that I had, that I was the problem, to recognizing that so many other people felt the same way, which made me write a book trying to make the statement that if so many of us feel alone, if so many of us feel pain, maybe that's the thing that connects us. Maybe we aren't so abnormal. Maybe, just maybe you could walk one more day because you recognize that you're not the only one that's hurting and that maybe your pain can actually help you connect with others. That's a lot right there. But as you were saying it, I was starting to think about why people are alone. I mean, there's more people on the planet than ever before. It's hard to kind of, you know, go twice, go anywhere without sort of bumping it. But it's not just about people being around you, right? That's the whole point. It's being alone in plain sight. In other words, even in a crowd, you feel alone. You feel yeah. that you're not seen, you're not heard. Is a lot of this to do with the sort of digital world we're living in. You know, I see my kids, you know, they'll often sit in a room and they'll have their buddies with them and they've all got their phones out and they're actually sort of texting each other while sitting right there. Yes, I think social media and, and the web can be kind of an easy explanation. I think it is a part of a problem. I also think we have the opportunity to connect more than ever. 
So I would I don't want to just blame those things and say, that's the problem. We need to get rid of them because I, I think they have the opportunity. Like we're faced, we're, I'm, I'm seeing your guys' face right now through Zoom. This is an incredible technology that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago that now we get to do, we get to talk from all different places around the world and connect as humans. I think it's how we're using it and how we're using the things that are available to us today. I think we're allowing those things to isolate us more because we sit, like you said, I, I've been in the room with teenagers when they sit and they text each other when they're sitting five foot from each other, or you get on social media and you see everybody living this tremendous life and you're at home trying to be authentic to yourself and going, I don't live that life, or I don't look that way, or that person is seems to be doing a lot better than me. And so it makes me feel like I have something wrong with me, or let's go one step further where we're, we're more comfortable sitting in our own isolated circles than ever before inside. You know, I don't know a lot of kids that just get out and play that just get out and, and get muddy and dirty and hang out with friends for eight hours. You know, I'm only 32, but 20 years ago, that's all we did. That's all we, we had to do. And then I think the, the other thing that, you know, I want to point to is just how are we responding to others? Are we actually intentionally trying to connect with others? Why have we lost our trust in the ability to be vulnerable with others? Do we have friendships and relationships around us that we've built the, the trust so that we can start to talk to them about the things that are deepest inside of us? And then maybe the reverse would be, how do we respond when people do that to us? Do we try to fix them? Do we try to tell them that they need to change? I mean, you know, as a Christian myself, the church has done a terrible job of this, right? We've just told people to change all the time, forever. It's never worked. It's just made people angry and it's just pushed people aside. What if we started to sit with people and try to actually connect with them again, instead of trying to act like we, we know it all or have it all together? I think there's a lot of things that we could we could say, but I think the most obvious, obviously, is our, our, the way we're using technology and the things that have been available to us. What, what do people learn about you from this book, specifically Alone in Plain Sight? What do they learn about your pain, your suffering, and how you're coping? It's really hard, guys. It was really weird to write a book. Took me two years and to write about myself was weird because I knew if I wanted to write something that I be could believe in. And then if I could write something that I thought people would be interested in outside of just learning about me, I had to dig deep. And so I had to bring up stuff I've never talked about before outside of friends and family, which is, you know, the mistreatment of others, pushing people aside in my life for my own personal gain, learning from those things. But that's a really weird thing for me to talk about. Like the other is addiction. Uh, you know, I've struggled with addiction in my life. And I wrote about it because I know so many others are, are, are experiencing addiction as well. And I don't write it to tell them, hey, look at me now. I'm sober. I'm great. It's you're not alone in your addiction. Like you're not alone in your pain. You're not alone in your thoughts. You're not alone in your desire to numb and to not feel. Uh, they'll learn that about me. They'll learn about a little like there's like four pages on The Bachelor and that experience that I think are important to write about. But mostly I, I read about my story and then I wanted to bring in the story of others, people like a young lady named Annie, who was 23 years old and kind enough to share her last three weeks of life with me through text and phone calls. She had cystic fibrosis and she knew she was dying. She knew she didn't have a lot much longer left. And so she allowed me the space to ask her some questions that I've, I've really desired to ask in my life, which is what does it feel like to know that you're dying? Because we all are, right? But what is it? feel like to know that you only have a few weeks left what lessons do you want to tell your friends and your family and all of us what things do you wish you would have done differently or done more of so her story and a few other people that i think people will get a lot out of and that i've gotten a lot out of 
So those are the things you'll learn. What is the opposite of alone in plain sight? Connected. Yeah, I just say connected. That's it. And who is that? I mean, I mean, I guess I, I mean, I feel connected, but I yeah. also sometimes feel alone. I mean, there are, I think you can, you can yo-yo between the two. I mean, there are times where you feel connected perhaps to a community, you feel connected to a certain group of people, but then you can also be, there be at times where you feel very alone or even vulnerable because of the, the new group of people you're in or this new, something you're not familiar with. And at that point, you're, you know, it can become dangerous. Is that, is that one of those things too? Or is that not, that's slightly different? No, you're right. I mean, this book is not for, for, it is for those who feel alone consistently. Those people we talked about earlier who may be going, Ben, you're crazy. You do this show called Hope Still Wins. That comes from a very privileged place that you even can believe in that because I don't. It's for those people. It's for those of us that have moments of feeling deeply connected to others and have experienced also deep moments of pain and isolation to where we go, I don't know where to turn. And I don't know if I can go another day. And, and it's part of the human experience also. Uh, is all of us have ups and downs, pains and sorrows. My hope is that we can also, within that throw in, we also can connect because we've all had hopes and joy. I don't know if I could prove that. You know, I think somebody could honestly come to me and disprove that they've ever experienced hope and joy. But I, I know that everybody's experienced pain or will at least experience pain at some point. And so, yes, I mean, I think there's seasons of both. I think there's moments of both. I think there's people who are deeply connected right now as we speak and we can learn from them. We can listen to them. We can watch them. We can see what they've done to put themselves in a place where they are thriving and make, helping others. But also I think we can learn from the people who are sitting there going, I don't know if I can take it another day. But when, when you say connect, so to me, when you said connected, when you, when you aren't connected, my immediate thought was you, you've been self-connected. You know, if you're going to connect with others, you're going to help others. You're going to love others. You've got to start with yourself. Right. I mean, that's a, I'm not talking about a narcissist. I'm talking, you know, you, you've got to be confident in who you are and the way you think and the way you behave, and the, which I think you've got. You know, you wake up in the morning, sure, you, it, it seems to me that you're doing, you probably do a bit of homework every day on yourself and check in with yourself about your behavior, you know, how you're feeling and how you're behaving. But we, I've had this conversation before on this podcast when it's come up, but I once asked the psychoanalyst, you know, what still surprised her after 40 years of studying the human condition. And she said the fact that, you know, 98% of the population live in a state of self-deception on a daily basis. You know, that's a disconnect, right? When you say connected, I'm assuming the opposite of being lonely, being connected is you start with yourself. I mean, do you, do you think that or is, is it more of a social thing? No, I, I, you're, you're spot on, Tom. So the book's broken up into four sections. The very first section is, reconnecting with self. Right. So the experts spoke into me and, and, and opened up my eyes to the idea that we need to eliminate expectations and labels and the things that we've surrounded our and the busyness so that we can connect with ourselves so that we can take moments of meditation and prayer and silence and self-reflection and self-awareness so that we can have a connection with ourselves. We can understand ourselves. We can learn to work on ourselves, but also love ourselves. So you're spot on. The next section goes into connection with others. And so once you're, once you're connected with yourself, you're going to be a great asset to those around you because you're going to be able to show them em empathy, you know, a lot of emotional in uh, intelligence and awareness. You're going to be able to build great communities around you. And then uh, I talk about romance, mostly singleness. What does it look like to be single and how 
great that can be and that it's not a disease that needs to be cured, but it's something that can be celebrated and something that can be fantastic. And then finally, uh, a connection with God. And so what does it look like if you at least ask yourself the question, is there something greater than me out there? If your answer to that is no, well, that changes the course of your perspective of life. If the answer is yes, then what are you going to do about it? Uh, how are you going to respond? Uh, are you going to take it seriously or not? Are you going to believe that this God's called you to love others well or not? And so, yes, you're spot on that. I believe it starts with me trying to connect with myself and to understand myself and love on myself. You just mentioned that society thinks or deems being single a disease or, or, or treats being single as a disease. What do you mean by that? It's funny. I, you know, I live pieces of my life, a lot of my life, single, but pieces of my life. And every time it felt like within the first moments of conversation, it was always, who are you dating? Are you dating? Why aren't you dating? Are you interested in dating? Can I set you up with somebody? Some of those things are well-intentioned. I understand that. But what you start to feel like is that you are, you have a problem and that somebody else out there has the solution and that they see you as this project in a sense. And then some people out there don't want a relationship. They have no desire to be in a romantic partnership. And so what are we going to do about that? Are those people pushed aside? I mean, personally, you know, if you go back to the, you know, my faith, the book I read, Paul talks great deals in the Bible about being single and the opportunities that exist when you're single. So much freedom, so much opportunity. You can pick up and leave on a whim and nobody, nobody's holding you back. Now, there's still, there's so much beauty in relationships, right? I wanted a relationship. I wanted a, a family. I wanted a partner beside me. And so I went out and looked for that. But I want to talk to the, the, the people out there that are going, you know what, that doesn't interest me. Or maybe they're single and still looking. So we want to speak to those people. Like, don't give up. Keep dating. Keep having fun with it. There's not a problem with you. But I guess the point to writing that and speaking to it the way I did was to hopefully empower the individual to know that if they don't have a partner, they're still okay. Uh, and that they still have value and purpose. Uh, that there's nothing wrong with them. It's just the life that they're living. So it felt like something that so many people wanted to try to solve or to cure. And I just think that's unfortunate. You were on a show called The Bachelor. So, I mean, I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, the, yeah. in, in itself, it's like uh, it's the, the pot calling the kettle black right there a little bit. But I, but I do get, I understand exactly. Yeah. I understand the point. I get where you're coming from without a doubt. Uh, first of all, I hear too that you're engaged, are you not? I am. I am. Congratulations. When, when exactly did this happen? I, I mean, did it, ha did it happen mid-quarantine or something? It happened March of 2020. So it's been over a year. We've pushed back the wedding, as many people have. But yes, I am engaged. So happy. Again, I, you know, I wanted a, a partner. I knew that I would be a better man if I had a, a partner beside me. And so um, I found an incredible person. Her name is Jessica. And we got uh, engaged in March in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, and now we're going to be getting married this year in November. And so you're right. It is the pot calling the kettle black. It is ironic. It is all those things. But I still think I could speak into it, hopefully in a helpful way at some level, even though, hey, I'm happily in a relationship. So what what is it about Jess? I want to talk about Jess now, because what, what is it about Jess that that sort of, I guess, shook you and was able to take this bachelor and actually win him over and... Um, 
you know, obviously, you know, here's a man who's writing about society seeing single as a disease. And now she, you know, somehow this Jess has something special. What is it about her that's so special? Tell us. Yeah, well, I, I DM'd her. So I messaged her, which is the start. Uh, she desires to see me thrive. And I hope she'd say the same about me, uh, I think is one thing that just immediately I could tell she just wanted to see me to be the biggest, best version of myself. And she wanted to to stand alongside that. She wants to hold me accountable in the healthiest of ways. But then as her as a human, uh, she's the kindest, sweetest soul. She loves others well. She loves my family well. She loves my friends well. She loves her friends well. She's added a sense of, of love in my life, not only my love towards her, but our, you know her desire to love others. And when I see her and when I look at our future together or look at look at who I'm becoming around her, as Thomas mentioned earlier, it's somebody as I as I sit in my self-reflection, it's somebody that I can connect with more. It's somebody that I, I believe is a better man. And and I'm I'm thankful for her for that. And I hope she would say the same about me. I don't know if she would. That's a separate podcast right there. Yeah, right. That's it. I mean, I hope she listens uh, because I do. I, I love her because of who she is. And because of all of her, not just her greatest moments, but like, it's weird when you, when you fall in love, you start to see even the most difficult moments as something beautiful. And, and I think for us, that's been something that we've continued to watch and witness. And after a year of being engaged, there's been difficult moments, but they become beautiful in the end. So you've written a book, you are about to, I'm assume, write your wedding vows? Yeah, yeah I guess so. Have you started? Come on now. Are, are we going to give us a little insight? Uh, I have notes in my phone. So I have this, I, I keep a lot of notes in my phone and I, I pick up on things as we go and, and feelings or emotions or moments. And so, yes, I guess I have started. They have not been formulated in anything perfect, but I'm hoping those vows kind of speak to who she is. And mostly kind of what I just said is, is who she allows me to be and who she's helping me become not with her forceful hand, but with a loving guiding presence. And yeah, I guess that is my vows. I could say that right now, I guess. We could cheer. There you go. You heard it here on Shaken and Stirred first. The, the wedding vows of Benny. I love it. I do, by the way. Um, no, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of wonderful. You know, you are, you are traditional, but not traditional in many ways. Do you, how would you describe yourself when it comes to sort of, I guess, the spirit, your spirituality and, and how, where you are on perhaps the spectrum of, of con, being sort of conservative or traditional versus sort of new wave or, or modern or, or do you not? Just, I, I'm just curious as to how one sees oneself. I, I, I'm hesitant to put labels on it because if I, if I give myself a label, there's going to be a ton of negative response to that label. How I would describe my, myself right now is you know, a Christian mystic, meaning I believe in the mystery that is God. And uh, I know less now than I did 10 years ago about that. It feels like it's it's a consistent ripping away at preconceived notions and assumptions. It's an added bit of life knowledge, maybe as I get older, but it's starting to become really okay with not knowing. And as a result, allowing that unknowing to have more peace, more calm, but also, I mean, I'm hoping, you know, the best compliment somebody could give me, I guess, would be that because of the unknowing, it's allowed me to love on others well who might not be in the sim who might not share a similar belief system uh, or run in a similar circle or have had the same life experience or more life experience than I have. It's just allowed me more of a peace and a, and a calmness and a presence more than anything else. So, you know, 
I would just say mystical, but based in an idea, I believe in Jesus more and more all the time, because I just believe in what he called us to, which is love God and love others, as I said. So I can't get away from that. It continues to make sense to me. Christian mystic. There you go. I like that. It sounds yeah. like a Van Morrison lyric. I think we should now make Nigel answer his own question. My own question? What, what yeah. am I? Yeah, what are you? <laughs> I think you, I don't think you can ask questions unless you can answer the same question yourself. Confused and uh, well, you know, I don't know if I'm confused. I, I, I've, I definitely have questions of my own. I'm, I'm spiritual. You know, I believe in a higher spirit and a higher force. I, you know, often, for, better, for lack of a better term, don't necessarily like the word God just because of it, it has. There are so many connotations, and I, I sort of feel that. And I, this is just because it's semantics more than anything, because it's a word. But I, I, you know, I do believe in a spirit which you could call a god. But I, for all religions, I sort of, you know, there's an element of what is that? Who is that? What you know? And you know, I like to think of it as a sort of all being, you know, and both male, female, and everything else in between. It's bigger than that. It's not a, you know, for me, you know, it's a sort of, and I. Yeah, you know, I, I feel connected to the universe, you know, and I feel things that and see things, and I've witnessed things in my own life that prove to me personally that there is a higher force, that there is a greater calling, and that one is to be driven to do the right thing. And I personally can't see a problem or an issue and walk across the street away from it. I have to get involved and tackle it and be a part of it and and be a, try and figure it figure it out and stop that. So, you know, what would I call myself? You know. I don't know. I really, I've never, it's an interesting. I think there is agnostic, it sounds like. I think that's the term. I don't know that it's agnostic. Agnostic means you don't believe, right? And I, I do believe. I just don't believe in a specific, in a specific, uh, in a specific, with a label. Like, you know, I would, I was brought up a Christian and I agree with all the tenets of Christianity. You know, um, I do believe that a lot of the translations of how we like to think of it, for me, are don't really resonate. As in, I don't think necessarily personally that necessarily the miracles were important for for me to believe. I didn't need that. But I do feel that sometimes they're used as a look what happened. He was like a magician, therefore he was magical. And so therefore he was powerful. And where I'm like the actual what he believed in, what was you know, what he spoke about was so important was in the things that he was how he was changing people. That was what was important for me. And that's why I would have followed him anywhere. Right. And yeah, for sure. So, I, look, I think it's sort of one of those things where, you know, ultimately I'm a Christian, I guess, at heart, you know, because that's where my everything that he stood for and his that writing is, is where my heart is. But I also see those similar words, those similar writing in almost every faith in different ways and, and in different places. But anyway, there you go. That's my take on it. Well, and it just sounds like we have a lot more in common than we have different, right? I mean, and that's and that's part of the mystery that I was speaking of is, how concrete can we keep these thoughts and beliefs? And then what does that do when we start to hold on to those more than we start to focus on others? What happens when those, the, when those things that we hold on to so tightly, those preconceived notions, and the, is when we stop paying attention to what's going on around us? And I think as a result, it puts you in a place of a lot of unknowing. And I think that could be beautiful and can be very helpful. 100%. But before we let you go, we've got a couple of things. I want to quickly ask you, by the way, Ben, orphan myth. You yeah. are ambassador of orphan myth, correct? Oh, very correct. Yeah. So here's one of those things, right? Um, about six months ago, I had a friend of mine who kind of brought me into this organization or this movement, I would say. 
uh, and started to educate me on the foster care system and the mistreatment, sometimes unintentional, of orphans all around the world. And then when she did that, she started talking to me some about some of those solutions, and I could agree upon these solutions. And so I started to ask, how can I help? And orphan myth is one of those ways. Orphan myth is, is the idea that if we start getting smarter about how we care for orphans, if we start getting kind of a movement around that, then we can make a massive difference in this world and that we can start allowing kids to feel loved and be loved and recognize that they are loved no matter where they're at and no matter how far away they've been separated from their families. So Orphan Myth is, uh, has a campaign going on right now called the 100% Participation Campaign. And the idea is that if 100% of us do something as big as adopting a child, as small as just telling your neighbor about it, then this problem can be solved. And so I'm just talking about it uh, as best and as, as much as I can. I'm learning about it a lot along the way. I've been able to speak with kids who have been in the orphan, orphan care system, who have been foster kids and hear their stories. And every time I hear a story, I go, yeah, we can do more. We can do better. And so that's, uh, that's Orphan Myth. You can go and visit it, Google Orphan Myth and find out more about it. But it's about 25 organizations that have partnered together to focus on helping solve the problem that's existing within the orphan care system. It is the myth around orphans. The fact that people, right. for example, think there aren't any orphans in America or yes, you know, right. things like that. They know there are perhaps the orphans out that are out there actually have parents that they just have abandoned them. Things like that. Those sorts of facts, which are not true. And so well done for that. It's such an important issue. I'm a uh, big, big uh, supporter of Hopeland, which is mm-hmm. our friend Hugh Jackman and, and uh, Debs Burness. That's their organization that they founded and, you know, they do, do extraordinary work and, uh, you know, so absolutely really well done. It's so important. But before you go, we've got something called Last Orders on this show, which is a sort of rapid fire, quick uh, question asking moment where we just kind of do a little deep dive and it's a bit of fun. Are you ready, Ben? Yeah, one second. Can I say something really quick? Please. You mentioned uh, Hugh Jackman and his wife. It's Hope, right? The Hope Land. So they're one of the reasons why I got involved in this. And, and if they listen to this or not, I just like to say thank you to them because, you know, sometimes you you talk about things and you get on podcasts and you do all these initiatives and life gets busy and they have a lot going on, I know, and you don't know the impact. But one of the reasons is because of the people they've connected, the people that then connected with me, the the insights and the platform that they have to share this this campaign uh, allowed me to kind of have a better jumping off point. So yeah, if they listen or not, it's just thank you for that. And thank you for trying your best to, to help out. They're doing a great job at it, I can tell. And and so, yeah, I just want to say that because that's how I got connected. I don't know them personally, but it's through a network. Devs and Hughes are our only listeners. Thanks. Oh, perfect. <laughs> but um, last orders, uh, and, and we're going to get, get listen, you've been such a great guest, but we have this this rather fun little routine called Last Orders on Shaken and Stirred, which like I mentioned is a sort of rapid fire moment. Um, and um, it's really easy. We just kind of get to know you a little bit better on some silly stuff. Okay. So here we go. Mountains or ocean? Ocean. Ocean, of course. Who, who is mountains? I'm in the mountains. I live in the mountains. I live in the mountains too. It's right there, right there. There you go. That's why you want the ocean. That's exactly why. <laughs> it's what you want, what you can't have. Oh, dear. It's a whole book. There's another book for you right there, by the way. Um, childhood nickname? Higgy. 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 Okay. Okay. I won't ask. In the movie of your life, who would you have play you? Hugh Jackman. 
God, um, and we're brown nosing now too, Tom. You notice this? He's only listener, so it's the only one that matters. Blaspheming as well. <laughs> what gets your goat, and what floats your boat? Uh, when people stand up on planes uh, before their seats are like supposed to be going. What floats my boat? Kettle one, martini, two blue cheese olives, and he brought. Coffee. Coffee. It's like 3.50 here, guys. I got a lot of work left to do. It's five o'clock somewhere, my friend. (laughs) And finally, shaken or stirred? Shaken. Yeah, definitely. It's easy. I've got to say something. I've got to point something out. I have never, ever... I mean, I think from all the podcasts we've done, I've never heard such concise, confident, and quick answers to any questions that our guests have been asked. Do you not agree? I mean, as in, no pause. As a man who knows what he's talking about, where yeah. he's going, who he is, clearly connected with himself. We appreciate it, Ben. You are uh, really quite something. And his book is Alone in Plain Sight. They can get it where, uh, well, other than on Amazon, where else can people get this book, Alone in Plain Sight? You can go to my uh, narcissistic page, benhigginsbook.com buy from there, or you can really Google it. Or I'm always a big proponent if people are really interested in buying it, which I hope you are, to just go to your local bookstore, uh, especially right now. Just go out there and take the five-minute drive and go pick it up if, if they have it. If not, they'll order it for you. And it's just it's just a good way to help. Absolutely. 100%. There you go. Ben Higgins, helping everyone help themselves, helping the bookstores. We love it. Mate, good luck with everything uh, good luck with you know all the work that you're doing alone in plain sight. Uh, Hope still wins. Almost famous. I mean the list goes on and on. Orphan myth and all the rest of it. All the best, mate. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Nigel. Appreciate you guys. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya.